throughout Scripture, the wrath of God is declared to be a reality with which men must come to terms. This is true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 7, verse 11, it says that God judges in righteousness and is angry with the wicked every day. In the New Testament, Hebrews 10, verse 31, says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In this book of Revelation, in the visions given to the Apostle John, he has both heard that wrath of God declared and seen that wrath of God executed. Back in Revelation 6, the kings of the earth beg for the mountains and the rocks to crush them and to, quote, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who will be able to stand? In Revelation 11, the seventh angel sounded its trumpet and the declaration is made that your wrath has come. In chapter 14, we see all of that imagery of that wrath as the unrighteous world is is gathered and trampled in quote the the winepress of the wrath of God. The pouring out of God's wrath is a climactic event in his plan for human history. It is a reality which with with which believers and unbelievers alike must come to terms. For unbelievers you will be the object of God's divine wrath. Back in chapter 14, verse 10, it is pictured as an undiluted drink which unbelievers are made to drink. It is poured into the cup of God's anger. Then in verse 19, it's the winepress where God treads out the wicked in his wrath. This is a future reality which should draw you away from your sins and draw you to faith in Jesus. For believers, we must also come to terms with the reality of God's wrath, even if it is an uncomfortable truth for you. If there is one simple sentence that I could place into your hearts and minds this morning, it would be this. Wrath is a necessary and righteous attribute of the Holy God. Let's read Revelation 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not... Fear thy name, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, 
the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened and the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles and one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. There is a common misconception that the God we read about in the Old Testament is somehow different than the God we read about in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, oh, he is... He is angry. He is moved with indignation toward wickedness. And so that God destroyed the world in the flood and he rained down fire and annihilated Sodom and Gomorrah. That God is the one that plagued Egypt. But the New Testament God, he, surely he isn't that way. We know him through the person of Jesus who is a, a timid, vulnerable pacifist. It would be some kind of character flaw for Jesus to be angry, except, of course, that that's not the case. In fact, being gentle and loving on one occasion and then being angry and assertive on another occasion is solid evidence for the unchanging nature of Jesus. Anger and wrath is the righteous reaction to unrighteous actions. And so we see this in Jesus, for example, in, in Mark 10, when parents brought their children to see Jesus, his disciples turned those parents away. And when Jesus heard about that, Mark chapter 10, verse 14 says he was much displeased, which is a very, very understated translation of the words that mean he was full of indignation. He was livid with them for turning those children away. In Mark chapter 3, he entered the synagogue where there's a man with a withered or a, a, a shriveled hand and he was worshiping and the religious leaders watched with no compassion at all toward that man that they knew, only watching to see if Jesus would dare to heal on the Sabbath day. Well, he would dare. Not only would he dare, but he brought that man forward and it says that he, quote, looked at them with anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Maybe the most clear occasion of Jesus' wrath in the Gospels occurs in John chapter 2, when he enters into the temple and he saw the many abuses that were directed at the temple worshipers. Right? Priests were rejecting the animals that they had brought for sacrifices, saying, you have to go get a... a pure sacrifice we just happen to have some for sale at horrendously outrageous prices but of course your money's not good enough to buy them you have to go over there and exchange your money for temple money first at of course absolutely outrageous exchange rates jesus saw all this in the temple and he made himself a whip violently driving them out of the temple throwing over the the tables of the money changers. All that anger is righteous anger. Had Jesus had a different reaction? Had he, 
Had he reacted in indifference toward the rejection of those little children brought to him? If he had been, if he had reacted in disinterest in the cold heart, hard-heartedness of the religious leaders, or if he'd had apathy toward the abuse of those temple worshipers, all of that would have been a character flaw. Wrath is a necessary and righteous attribute of the holy God. Anger and wrath is the righteous reaction to unrighteous actions. In fact, let me just add this. We want to think of a God who is merciful, right? And he is. But he is not only merciful. If mercy is with withholding justice for a time, there must come a time when mercy ends. If God withholds justice forever, that's not mercy, that is injustice. Listen, Psalm 103, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, but he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. There must come a time, there will come a time, when the wrath of God is poured out on the unrighteousness of this world. Revelation chapters 15 and 16 records John's vision of that time. If you remember, there are all these sets of sevens in the book of Revelation, right? Uh, The first set of seven is there's seven seals that hold together this scroll of God's plan for human history. And Jesus, the lamb, takes the scroll and he opens those seven seals one at a time. And each time one is opened, there is a cataclysmic event. And then as the seventh seal is opened, There are seven angels that come forward with seven trumpets and each of those are sounded one at a time. And now, after the sounding of that seventh trumpet, there are seven vials or bowls of God's wrath. John says in verse 1, These are the seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Right? In them, the wrath of God is completed, is the idea. That is, God's wrath will now reach its end. It's going to be fully accomplished. Look at verse 7. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. That word vile is simply the Greek word for a bowl. There are these angels that have a bowl and each bowl is filled with the wrath of God that's going to be poured out one at a time. And all of that happens through Revelation chapter 16. But before John gets to that vision of those vials or those bowls being poured out, He gives us chapter 15, which serves as sort of a a prelude to God's wrath. So as we go through this chapter, I want you to note the preparation for God's wrath in verses 1 and 2, the praise of God's wrath in verses 2 through 4, and the power of God's wrath in verses 5 through 8. The preparation for God's wrath, 
begins in verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea mingle, a sea of glass mingled with fire. We'll just stop there for a moment. I want you to note a couple of words that John uses in regard to this vision. It's evident that he is writing this vision down, not as it happens, but after he has seen the whole thing. He anticipates writing it all down by saying what he saw is a sign that he describes in verse 1 as great and marvelous. Knowing that this is a vision of seven final ultimate plagues, John doesn't say, brace yourself because of how horrible this description is. His attitude is something great and marvelous is coming. The seven last plagues of God's wrath. So I'll just say again, the wrath of God is something that believers need to come to grips with because it is a cause for his glory. It is pretty evident that John, who we call the apostle of love, has come to grips with this. Another word that needs some explanation is that word plague. We ordinarily think of plague like you know, a, a sickness or a disease. And when we get to Revelation 16, the the judgments that are poured out, there are going to be things that would be plagues in the sense that we think of them, right? Sores and, and poisons. But there are also judgments of God's wrath, which wouldn't be considered plagues the way we think of that word. There's going to be a military invasion. There's going to be a destructive earthquake. There's going to be hail. This word plague that John uses does not mean sickness or disease. It's the Greek word plagos, and it means a blow or a a, a strike or a wound. It's actually used in Acts of the apostles being whipped and beaten. It's used by Jesus in the story of the good Samaritan as he was beaten by bandits. It's actually the same word John himself uses in Revelation earlier in chapter 13 for the Antichrist who has a deadly wound, a plagos. He's, he's been struck on his head. I say that so that we'll have the same thought as the original readers here. These final plagues being described are Seven times when the Almighty God is going to rain down blows, he is going to strike the world in his wrath. John also wants it clear that the source of this wrath is not the seven angels in question. Don't don't get caught up with these angels. The source of this wrath is God himself. In verse 1, it is the wrath of God. In verse 7, these angels are handed vials or bowls filled with the wrath of God. Look again at verse 2. In John's vision, we are reintroduced to a scene that we've previously visited in this book. He says, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Back in Revelation 4, John described his vision of the heavenly throne room, and he wrote in chapter 4, verse 6, that before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, there are these four Beasts or living creatures. This is another view of God's throne. 
I know some folks want to know just exactly what this sea of glass is. I've heard it said, this is, this is a window in heaven in which our, our, our dead loved ones can look down on earth and watch us. Listen, I assure you, our loved ones in heaven have better things to do. They get to worship Jesus in unity with him every moment of every day. Whether this sea of glass is, is a window or, or a mirror or, or, or what, makes it, what makes John describe it as a, a sea, I don't think we can know. I don't think John knows. Both times he uses words like it's like unto or in verse 6, it, it's as it were. He means it's something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Right? He's doing his best to, to describe what he sees But what this does tell us with certainty is that our text is this wrath is being poured out on earth and it comes from exactly the same place that John was seeing in Revelation 4. This is the wrath of God. This is his righteousness. This originates at his throne. It is accomplishing his purpose. Wrath is a necessary and righteous attribute of a holy God. So having seen the the preparation of God's wrath, John goes on in this vision to describe the praise of God's wrath. Pick up in the middle of verse two. At that sea, there were also them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. They stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb saying, great and marvelous are thy works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, you King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments are made manifest. If you'd please consider with me these words in verses 2 through 4 and who is saying them and why they're saying them so that we can just grasp how sort of upside down this vision is from how the world thinks. Earlier in this book of Revelation, John saw a vision of martyrs in Revelation 6 verses 9, which he said were, in Revelation 6, 9 and 10, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held, they were crying with a loud voice, how long, O Lord, holy and true, Do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now in this cycle of repeated visions, John sees them again and says that they had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. You hear that? What he says about these martyrs is not, oh, that they died horribly. They were executed by the Antichrist and the false prophet. What he says is they had gotten the victory, martyred for the cause of Christ, cruelly put to death in this world. They stand on that sea of glass as victors. This, this is upside down from the world's thinking, but it is perfectly in line with biblical thinking. The words of Jesus, don't, don't fear them that can kill your body but can't destroy your soul. Real real fear is to be reserved for the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. 
what appears in this world to be defeat is actually ultimate victory. The apostle James killed by a sword, that's victory. He's ushered into the arms of Jesus who says, well done, you good and faithful servants. The faithful martyr Stephen crushed to death by stones as young, wicked young Saul watched. That was a victory. Years later, when that wicked Saul became known as the Apostle Paul, Rome could cut his head off, but it only ushered him victoriously into the presence of the Lord Jesus, where he could join the martyr Stephen and praise God together. They are victorious They are conquerors, John says, this is what this word means, through faith in Jesus. Whatever may come, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. The Apostle Paul wrote it like this in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And for all that, when you look at verses 3 and 4, as what they sing Who gets the praise? You know, the ancient Vikings had this idea of what they thought heaven was. They call it Valhalla. And they, it's supposedly a place where warriors would gather together around the table and, and regale each other with the, the tales of all of their victories in battle. And yet John sees heaven and he says, these are victorious saints and nobody is entertaining one another with the stories of their own bravery. Verse three says that they're singing two songs. The first is the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the second is the song of the lamb. These are songs praising God for his sovereignty and praising God for his wrath. We know these songs from other places in Scripture. The song of the Lamb refers back to earlier in Revelation, back in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. They sang praise to the Lamb of God. It says they sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and has redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation." And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So the song of the Lamb is about that victory that's gained through what Jesus has done. The song of Moses, the servant of God, almost certainly comes from Exodus chapter 15. After God had plagued Egypt and delivered his people by executing wrath on Pharaoh and his army, Moses led the children of Israel in a song. I'm not going to read all of Exodus 15 for you, but listen to the first seven verses. And Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy to pieces. And in your greatness, the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The song of Moses, the servant of God, is a song of praise glorifying God for his wrath. In our text, Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4, are clear that Christians have a a contrasting view from the rest of the world. First off, death and martyrdom is not defeat. It's ultimate victory. Second, the wrath of God is not something to ignore or to excuse or to feel squeamish about. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is another attribute that deserves highest praise. We're going to come back to these verses in a moment. But we've seen the the preparation of his wrath, the praise of God's wrath. Look at the power of his wrath, verses 5 through 8. And after I looked and be- after that I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened and seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with girdle, golden girdles and one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. I'm going to be straightforward with you here. There are some phrases in that that puzzle me, right? I haven't found satisfying answers. Back in Revelation 11, verse 19, John said he saw the temple of God in heaven, Right? And sometimes the tabernacle, like in Moses' day, was called the tabernacle of testimony. But when he says in verse 5 that he sees the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven, that just floors me. Right? It's like he's seeing the temple, right? the building in which God was worshipped, and the tabernacle, the tent in which God was worshipped, all in one, except that it is in heaven. I think the idea is this is a heavenly sanctuary dedicated to his glory. And John says, look, it gets opened and there's these seven angels with seven plagues come out and they are dressed a bit like Old Testament priests, right? With pure white linen, a golden girdle or or band or sash around their chest, something like a vest, I think. But again, there is a stress that these angels are not the source of the wrath that's coming. God is. In verse 7, they are handed seven bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Why is it you think John includes that phrase, who lives forever and ever? It, It seems evident from the wording that this is not something he specifically heard. It's something that he has inserted in here as as a truth. Perhaps the purpose is to bypass complaints that this coming judgment and wrath is some new revelation, right? Nobody's going to be able to say, well, we didn't know. 
Because God has made himself known. He has made himself known forever and ever. Literally, that means for ages and ages. There is no excuse now that the, the time of wrath has come that somebody could say, oh, this is something new and unexpected. I think it's more likely, though, that John is expressing the eternal nature of God's wrath. What is about to come, as severe as the, the bold judgments are, when they get poured out, all of those things, as we read through them later in, in chapter 16, they take place, they exist for a time, and then they're done. But the wicked world is facing an even more ultimate wrath. When you have offended the eternal God who lives forever and ever, you've got a problem that is going to last just as long. And so John brings back this phrase forever and ever, I think, from chapter 14, when the wicked are seen being cast into the lake of fire. And if you remember, the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever as a testimony to the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Finally, before describing in chapter 16 these bowls of wrath in detail, John says that the temple, in verse 8, was filled with the smoke of the glory of God from his power. Back in the tabernacle, God revealed his presence with fire and smoke. In Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord filled the holy place like a smoky cloud. The idea here is that the glorious presence of God is in this place. And John says, nobody can enter this temple until the plagues are fulfilled. It is filled with God's glory and God's power and no one has the ability to approach and interfere with this plan of God outpouring his wrath. I want to make a couple of practical notes here. I've said now several times that wrath is the necessary and righteous attribute of a holy God. So let's take a minute to make some practical statements about that. I told you we'd come back to verses three and four, and I want to do that now because there's some observations there that I think will help us because it seems like many Christians struggle with this. How is it that we can praise God for pouring out his wrath? Let me point out to you four reasons. First, we can praise God for his wrath because it reveals his sovereignty. Now, we already noted up in, in verse 1 that John uses that term great and marvelous to prepare us for the outpouring of God's wrath. We find in verse 3 where it is he got those words, great and marvelous, right? In verse 3, they're singing this song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. The wrath of God reveals his sovereignty. It reveals that he is the Lord God Almighty in every situation. His sovereignty is worthy of praise. Second, you can praise God for his wrath because it proves his righteousness. Look at verse 3. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Just and true righteous and right. 
When God determined to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in his wrath, Abraham, in his response, asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The answer is yes, he will do right. He is never going to render a wrong judgment or issue a faulty decree. God is just and true. He is righteous and right. His wrath is above reproach. There's going to be no question. Are we sure that this is the way that it should be? Anger and wrath are the righteous reaction to unrighteous actions, and there'll be no complaint brought on on appeal to some kind of higher judge. There is no higher judge. God is righteous and right. He's the judge of all the earth. There's no question that he is just and true. We can praise God for his wrath because it proves his righteousness. Third, we can praise God for his wrath since it is evidence of his kingship. Remember, the Jewish people throughout history have uttered one prayer after another. They have a prayer for everything, but almost every one of them begins, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe. Well, in verse 3, it describes here that the, he's Lord God Almighty, just and true in all his ways, and he is the King of saints. There are some manuscripts that read King of ages, and others say King of nations, but Over what is Lord God not king? He is king of kings and his wrath gives evidence of his absolute rule. The earth is his and he rules with unimpeachable authority and we can praise him for this. Fourth, we can praise God for his wrath because it is a divine requirement of his holiness. Look at verse four. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, and your judgments are manifest. Listen carefully. When we ask this question, how can we praise God for pouring out his wrath? We ask that because it it feels a bit awkward for us to rejoice in the destruction of the wicked, or at least I think it does. I think it should. But verse 4 begins with this rhetorical question. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? And the answer clearly is nobody. There is no one who will not fear the Lord. There's nobody who's going to fail to fear and glorify God because you alone are holy. The holiness of God demands the wrath of God on unholiness. And the day is quickly coming. It is is out there on the horizon where all nations, that is people from every kindred and and tongue and, and people and nation will praise God because his judgments are made manifest. His wrath is going to be revealed. It is going to prove his unique holiness and it is a cause for praise. Because you can rejoice in God's sovereignty and in his righteousness and in his authority and in his holiness, believers can praise God for his wrath because it is firmly grounded in each of those attributes of God. Unbelievers, on the other hand, 
If you are not a disciple of Jesus, that is, you've not repented of your sin and trusted in him for salvation, this declaration of God's wrath should serve to draw you away from your sins and draw you to faith in Jesus. The essential truth of the work of Jesus that is that he came into this world and he lived perfectly and then he went to the cross and he endured the righteous wrath of God in the place of his people. So that if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, you can have confidence that the wrath of God that is reserved for you was poured out on Jesus at the cross. His anger and wrath towards you has been satisfied because Jesus endured it. It is either true of you that you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus and he endured God's wrath for you or you will endure it yourself throughout all eternity.